Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, I'm going to interact with some questions I've been receiving about neglect and abandonment. Now, if you are not uh, within the Christian faith, which this podcast is a Christian podcast and we operate within that context, but if you're listening from the outside, for lack of a better word, uh, this might be some new terminology or at least the way it's processed might be new. The reason why neglect and abandonment come up in the abuse world is because of some passages of scripture that are used to produce um, theologies of divorce, for lack of a better word. Typically, when we have cases of abuse and we're talking about you know, church leadership and church interaction, divorce is one of those things that come up. And different people fall on different uh, places in the spectrum. Okay, so some folks are what we'd call permanence view people, which they believe that there is no divorce uh, sanctioned by Scripture or allowed by Scripture, and therefore no remarriage. There are some folks within the evangelical world who believe that divorce is possible and in some ways permissible, uh, but remarriage is not. There are others who um, believe in different aspects of divorce and remarriage. They're often called two exception people, and um, they would uh, the two exceptions that are classically typically referred to are adultery and abandonment or desertion the reason why the abandonment question comes up is because there are some of us within the uh, within the work domestic violence work but then also some theologians who would argue that uh, abandonment uh, includes uh, aspects of abuse in fact uh, it was very Recently, a, a famous theologian in conservative evangelicalism, I uh, believe it was Wayne Grudem, came out with a statement including abuse in the most common abandonment passage, which is 1 Corinthians 7, uh, based on uh, a particular Greek word. Now, I, I would say, from a personal perspective, I would say that uh, Wayne Grudem and I come to similar conclusions, I think we get there differently. I think the passage actually implies what he's saying the, the Greek word is now producing or now revealing, uh, I think the passage implies. But regardless, that is the discussion. It happens quite a bit. Okay, When we're talking about abuse, where does it fall in that spectrum of uh, sin within the covenant of marriage that's really the question and i i'm not here to to give a um a specific position that is some kind of theological posturing that i'm going to conclude you know your church must agree with this i i actually think that good people wise people godly people are going to disagree on this issue so I, I want to talk just a little bit today in an attempt to help some individuals who are asking the questions just to kind of gain some clarity. I'm indebted to some friends who have done work on this, um, but also just the scriptures themselves for, I think, being relatively clear. Now, 
I will come to different conclusions than, again, other godly people will come to. Uh, but again, the point of the podcast today is to just wrestle with these issues. They are somewhat complicated, complex, uh, but to gain some clarity on the, the, the spectrum, as it were, of sin in a covenant marriage. So let's talk a little bit about why abandonment and neglect are mentioned together in Christian circles. So I mentioned the two exception view a second ago. There are those within the evangelical church who hold to two um, acceptable reasons uh, for divorce. Okay, the first would be uh, infidelity. It would be uh, adultery, and that comes from the words of Jesus, and is very commonly held within the church that if uh, one spouse were to commit adultery, uh, to use the common vernacular to cheat on their spouse, then that spouse would be free to, to pursue a divorce, okay? That's fairly commonly held uh, within evangelical circles, although there are folks to the right of that. There are folks even to the left of that, uh, but that's one of those positions within the two exception view. The other being desertion or abandonment comes from a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's take a look at that real quick. Let me pull that up. So Paul, within this passage, is talking about relationships between husbands and wives. He spends a good deal of time talking about the sexual relationship, saying that the wife's body belongs to the husband and the husband's body belongs to the wife, and we really shouldn't deny each other uh, sex, sexual fulfillment unless it's to separate for times of prayer and, and so on. And it's a, a commonly known passage in our work because... Quite frankly, some, some men have used this passage to be sexually coercive. Rather than being loving and patient, they've used the passage as a, as a weapon. And Paul doesn't write from that position if you read through the whole passage. It, it is a lot of, there is a lot of wisdom here. It's also consistent with some uh, traditional, traditional views of, uh, from, from his Jewish background. Okay? which we're going to talk about in a second. In particular, I think of Exodus chapter 21. But he, he goes on in uh, the passage to say this, starting around verse 12, Paul says, To the rest I say this, I not the Lord, if a brother has a wife. So this is Paul reasoning out what he knows of the truth. You note there he says, To the rest I say this, this is from me, not the Lord. If a brother has a wife, who is not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer, and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. This has been a, um, a question within our work within abuse because some, some folks have made the right, uh, true observation an abusive husband in particular, I work primarily with abusive husbands, that an abusive husband is more than happy to remain in the home. In fact, if his abuse is working, he's not going to leave. He's going to continue to abuse. And so this seems like a trap for Christian women who, who are looking for an opportunity to find some freedom. So let's continue the passage, and I'll try to unpack a little bit more. And it will, again, show that spectrum of, of abandonment and neglect, I hope. 
For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. So there's this idea of there's a, there's a holiness, there's a sanctifying nature to remaining uh, in a marriage. Um, and the idea here is that a couple is married, one becomes a believer, one is an unbeliever, but they're willing to live with each other. Later, Paul will use the word uh, the phrase called to peace. So the assumption is that this relationship is peaceful uh, is what I would uh, think the passage implies. It just so happens that one spouse uh, is an unbeliever while the other is a committed believer. Verse 15, however, says, but, but if the unbeliever leaves, right? It, it's the unbeliever says, I, I can't do this. I'm not going to live in this house and they leave, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Notice that the context of the mutual relationship where they're existing together in the home is a relationship of peace. He does say, however, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? And so in a peaceful home where one's a believer and one's an unbeliever, then evangelism is the key, love is the key, we still commit uh, to each other. Uh, but when peace is not present, uh, when one chooses to leave, uh, we should let them go. Uh, the contention is that, with, that the only exception here that we're talking about, right, there's adultery, we know how to define that, but then with abandonment, the idea is we're only talking about physical desertion. And so the dilemma that a lot of victims have found themselves in is they've had enough. They've been living under, say, years of oppression. They've tried to live at peace, but they, they can't. The conflict, oppression, pain, and suffering is to the point that they want to leave, even to the point of separation. It may not even be to the point of divorce, but the church and the church leadership are having a hard time finding scriptural justification for that because of the uh, the other partner should leave if they're an unbeliever, say. And that is when where the confusion has come in. And uh, so what is abandonment is the question. How does it relate to neglect? And why is that even a question when talking about abuse? And I know it's, there's a lot of complexities to this, so hopefully I'll be able to unpack it well. The reason why this comes up as this spectrum, uh, neglect, abandonment, abuse, is the unique and um, shocking similarities between 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's instruction to couples, and Exodus 21, which is Jewish case law. Now, Paul would have been very familiar with this case law, and case law being applied to the New Testament is not uncommon. It's actually what Jesus is debating when he lays down the adultery exception. Right? He's being questioned by the Pharisees about two different, pop, two popular interpretations of uh, a case law from Deuteronomy regarding uh, a man who finds something indecent about his partner. And is it to be interpreted anything indecent or is it just about sexual immorality? And um, Jesus answers the question, you know, directing it back to the Pharisees for you. It's porneia, and that's where we get the adultery discussion from. So Jesus is accustomed to interpreting case laws uh, in the New Testament. Paul seems to be 
and again, this, some would say I'm arguing from silence, and that's probably true. There are some good resources out there, some people who are really comparing these two passages well, but the reality is if my assumption is true, let's say that, and the assumption of others is true, it's an argument from silence only so much as it hasn't, it did not need clarity. The assumption we're working on is this seems to be a commonly held understanding. It wasn't debated like the Deuteronomy passage was. Because in Exodus 21, there's this case law of a slave. She's, she's captured and she becomes a wife. And uh, if you recall from, if you went to, to Bible college, they taught us that case law should be read from the lesser to the greater. The example I like to use is uh, don't muzzle the ox. It's something that uh, is used in the New Testament to talk about paying your pastor, that a workman is, is worth his wage. And so even the ox gets to eat. And that's an Old Testament case law, right? If the beast of burden gets to eat while he works, then certainly people should and so on. So if it applies to the ox, it applies to everyone in the system higher than him. Uh, the same would be true in the Exodus case law. Uh, that if it applies to the slave wife, it applies to all wives uh, and then everyone else above them in the system. And I know we wouldn't operate that way, but this is, again, trying to read uh, through the historical lens of when things was written, when the, the word was written. So in this case law, Moses makes sure to make this lowest common denominator um, a wife who was a slave, but a, a lady who was a slave and then was made a wife. Then her husband marries a second woman, all right? So now she's in a polygamous relationship, so it adds even more complexity, right? It's not a covenant um, relationship like we would function in. It is um, a different type of relationship. And then Moses says this, if he marries another woman, all right, he must not deprive the first one, the slave wife, her food, clothing, and marital rights. So he must provide for her um, a means by which to survive food. He must clothe her. So there the idea is of provision, protection, and then marital rights, sex. This is really about uh, provision as well, providing children and a means for children uh, in order to have kind of a, a social security net, things like that. It's interesting that this case law focuses in on providing provision, protection, and sexual intimacy. The uh, Moses goes on, Exodus goes on to say, if he does not provide her with these three things, she's free to go without payment of money. You see, the Old Testament case law here is talking about neglect. And, and Moses is saying, okay, this wife is free to go. She's free from the burden of this neglect, right? If her husband neglects her by not providing for her, not providing for her shelter, protection, not protecting her, not being intimate with her, then she's free to go without payment of money. So not only is she free from the marriage, she's free from the bondage of slavery. If this applies to her, as we were saying, if our reading of the case law is true, then it applies to everyone above her. This is why it gets put in the conversation with abandonment and therefore abuse. Because again, lesser to greater. If neglect is a means for separation and freedom, 
in the Old Testament. And abandonment or desertion is a means for neglect in the New Testament, then would it not stand to reason that abuse is a means of freedom uh, as well? That's, that's what we're saying. It would be very difficult to, to think that Paul was saying, if we went to Paul and we said, hey, uh, John has physically, emotionally, psychologically, or mentally battered Mary, and here's the evidence of that over the decade, that Paul would look and say, well, he should have, there's nothing I can do unless he physically leaves the residence. And so uh, that's where the discussion comes in. I want to just kind of paint a picture for you of uh, maybe four ways to look at this. So, so let's just think of abandonment again on a spectrum. And, and again, if abandonment is true, the assumption we're making is abuse is applicable also. Uh, first, let's just uh, assume uh, the desertion piece. So this represents the spouse that is outside the home and outside the covenant. Okay, so there's two things happening here. Um, this guy has walked out on his family. He has physically left the residence, but he's also physically abandoned the marriage covenant, right? Um, they've taken all their belongings out of the house. They've made it known. I don't want anything to do with her. The church usually recognizes that and surrounds the, um, the recipient, caring for the woman who has been left behind, caring for the children who've been left behind, calling the offender to repentance. This is an obvious, glaring case of the person not being pleased to live with their spouse not living at peace. So if we're going to apply the 1 Corinthians passage, the spouse left behind then, who's remained faithful, uh, would be free to go. We're going to uh, assume that this person's an unbeliever at this point. But that would be an example of how this passage is traditionally read. A person physically leaves the home and abandons the marriage covenant. However, we have to look at a couple other cases. So number two would be a spouse that's outside the home, but still inside the marriage covenant. That would not be desertion. It's something like um, military personnel. They can't live at home for an extended period of time. They haven't deserted their family because they're still committed to their family. It's understood. They're outspoken. They are committed and loyal. They're just not in proximity. They can't possibly continue to provide um, marital intimacy because they're maybe on the other side of the world, but they continue to provide provision. They continue to provide uh, support. And uh, like Paul says, while they're separated, they're committing themselves to each other and to prayer. This would be an example where divorce would not be biblically acceptable <clears throat> because you've got someone committed to the marriage covenant. They're just physically removed. <clears throat> Excuse me. The third would represent the spouse inside the physical residence and faithful. This is the ideal, correct? So you've got two people who are living together. You've got them within the covenant of marriage. And this individual is committed to the marriage. That would not be uh, permissible. But then there's this fourth, the area that sometimes gets overlooked. So as we've seen, we've got 
physically out of the residence, physically out of the marriage covenant. That's clearly desertion. We've got physically out of the home due to some circumstance, occupation, illness, but committed to the marriage covenant. That is not desertion. We've got physically in the home and in the marriage covenant. Obviously, a committed marriage. Number four is the spouse that's inside the physical residence, but not faithful to the marital vows. He or she has decided to cease fulfilling the biblical mandates of being a husband or wife, and they decided they're not going to move out. Okay? Uh, this person's made it known through their behavior, through their words, that they're not going to follow scripture and are not moving out of the residence. Um, this is this is what we're talking about. This is where the discussion comes into our world in domestic violence intervention and prevention because abusers, generally speaking, uh, are not going to willingly give up control. And being physically present in the residence allows them to have uh, a level of control. And so what happens here is we're asking questions. Is he pleased to live with her? Is he living at peace with her? Uh, is he neglecting her? Is he abusing her? Because if neglect is grounds for separation and possibly divorce, if physical desertion is grounds for divorce and possible you know, continued separation, then certainly isn't abuse in the home uh, grounds for separation and possibly divorce. That's the question. And the one in which I'm suggesting is implied in the first Corinthians passage. Some disagree with me, and that's fine. But I think as you look at the passage itself, Paul seems to allude back to Exodus 21 because we're called to provide for each other. He focuses in specifically on sexuality in the early part of the passage. Then he segues into this idea of divorce. And he reasons out loud, I, not the Lord, that if you are pleased to live together, if you are a believer and an unbeliever that can live at peace, then do so for the sake of the gospel. But if you're a believer and an unbeliever who cannot live at peace, right, and um, one is not being pleased with the other, then you're free to go. That there's a freedom there. Uh, we might even say a freedom to escape. And that number four that I talked about, right, that, that fourth category of physically dwelling in the home while not being committed to the marriage covenant is indicative of what we find in relationships ruled and controlled and uh, influenced by abuse. I hope that was helpful today. Uh, I hope the discussion makes some sense. That's why abuse, neglect, um, abuse, neglect, and uh, abandonment are, are ten, they tend to be talked about on the same spectrum. I hope uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and Exodus 21 helped clarify that a little. Again, godly people, good people disagree about this, but it's really a discussion that we should be having uh, because we, we don't want to be so rigid, I think, in our interpretation or our theological positions that we at least don't have a conversation about that fourth category uh, and in doing so require victims uh, or expect victims to remain in harm's way. Uh, without us taking proper steps to intervene, to stand in the gap, uh, and to help those who are suffering. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast today, uh, and as always, God bless you.